Good morning. Nice to see you all. And uh, today we're going to continue our study of Colossians here. Um, before we get started here, why don't we start with the invocation in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so uh, last week we had some pretty big uh, theological topics, and if you remember, we finished up uh, kind of section two of the overture. And remember, we're still in the overture, and I'm hopefully going to get through it today. And uh, we went through, uh, completed the source of knowledge, reason for intercession. Um, again, there we looked at a few major topics. If you recall, we talked about Paul's uh, use of the dominion of darkness. Uh, we talked about original sin. Um, and then we moved on and talked about how Paul tells us that we're delivered from this original sin by Christ. How that was done, if you recall, we talked about that Christ has transferred us into his kingdom. We kind of focused a lot about what that was, what kingdom was, and what that meant. And then we, we, we jumped into how then this is applied to us personally. So we covered baptism, and then we looked at then what kind of the benefits of all these were. And uh, we looked at the very important topic of redemption, which we'll kind of touch on that again some today. And if you recall, we really got in, in look at really what the atonement was and what the atonement is. And then we finished up on looking at really what the forgiveness of sin is. So original sin, transfer to the kingdom, redemption, atonement, and forgiveness of sin. We looked at those topics. So really what, what it came down at the, at the end, it's the amazing thing, really what the Father has done for us through Christ. It is the gracious will of the Father that humanity should know God as the rescuing God. Paul's point then, recap of last week, is that through the work of Jesus, uh, Paul's readers, the Colossians, and then really us, and all, for all Christians today, that we share in the inheritance of the saints uh, through Christ's redemptive work. Any follow-up questions on that, if I didn't get to it last week? Okay, so today is the final section, I don't know if you have your outlines in front of you, of this overture section. It's uh, sub-bullet point number three. And some commentators call this the Christ hymn, or it, where really we see two aspects of this. We see uh, creation, Paul's going to really focus on Christ as creator, and then again this concept of reconciliation. Um, Paul then is going to show us a view of creation, both material and immaterial, earthly and heavenly. And then Paul will then move on to the incarnate Christ and his redemptive work. Um, those who stand in saving relationship with Christ have everything that they need, including wisdom, which we talked about earlier, and fellowship with God, that the heresy uh, 
plaguing the Colossians um, claimed to provide at that time. Um, so why do, why do they say that this is a hymn? Really, no one really knows. Kind of some speculation, but some commentators has, have identified some kind of certain liturgical elements in this section. So it's widely held that this um, verses 1, 15 through 20 was a hymn, uh, possibly off, authored by Paul himself. But we won't get too much into that regarding whether it's a hymn or not. What the fantastic point is, is the theology that this um, brings out, which we'll jump in today. So if you guys want to turn in your Bibles then, in, in our Bible we see that this section is actually labeled the preeminence of Christ, which that's, um, that's what, you know, exactly what the line of the, of the um, outline has here. It's uh, the Christ hymn, creation and reconciliation, but ultimately it's the preeminence of Christ. So what I thought I'd do is I'll read through it, kind of 15, uh, Colossians 1, 15, um, through uh, 20, and then we'll kind of take each each verse then kind of step by step. So, why don't I read it here? Colossians 1.15, the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So as you can see, just kind of right off the bat here, verses 15 um, through 20 really is focused on Christ and who Christ is, and then verses 21 uh, through um, 23 is, is really focusing on what Christ has done. So with that, why don't we turn to looking at what Paul's focus on who Christ is in verse 15. So we see this language here. He is the image of the invisible God. All right? So Paul here is identifying that Christ is the image of the invisible God. But what, what does that mean? Um, looking at the Greek, uh, the, the term image... Um, is in Greek it's icon, and that's where we get icon, right? And icon is something that resembles the original. So that's what this image is, something that resembles the original. It corresponds to its original. Um, it resembles its essential features, okay? So icon then can be used to 
even express an identity of essence, and that's what Paul is doing here. Thus Christ is one in essence with the Father. Now, we've heard that before, right? We, we confess this every other week when we, talk, when we speak the Nicene Creed, where we say this, being of one substance with the Father. Okay, so that's what Paul is talking about. Jesus is one substance with the Father. The term icon then denotes that which is visible. Okay, Our Lord Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. If we would know what the invisible God is like, how do we do that? Well, we look at that which is visible, which has been revealed visibly, and that is Christ and Christ in the Incarnation. So that's what Paul is saying here when he talks about the image of the invisible God, that it is no other than Christ. When we see Jesus, who do we see? Paul tells us when we see Jesus, we see God. Again, that's the icon, something that resembles the original. That's the image. So that's the first thing that Paul is stressing about Jesus. Now, another aspect of this image of God that I found fascinating when I was researching this is really um, it also recalls creation of humanity. And if you guys would, why don't we turn to Genesis 1. So Genesis 1, 26. Uh, why don't we read through 28. Again, it's this concept of the image of God we're looking at here. So which is Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28. And we read here in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in what? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on to earth. So we've heard this image image before. We hear it right here in the early chapters of uh, Genesis, image. So, and I I talk about that this image then of God recalls the creation of humanity. And here we see it here with the creation of Adam and Eve. So when Adam was created in God's image then, um, so Adam was given dominion over the rest of creation, which we just read. But now then, when we look at it in this context with the Christ then, and looking back at the Old Testament on this concept of the image of God, what Paul is doing is applying this to Christ in this sense. So Christ who is the image of God, is the firstborn of every creature and is before all things. Christ came in the form or image of God in his 
incarnate in his incarnation and that is of course that he's not he's fully God but he's also man and in fact he can be referred to as the second or the last Adam and uh, I want to get into this a bit so look comparing Christ uh, image of God and then Adam at, in the beginning um, which we just read but Jesus is the second Adam Christ acted acted in a manner completely opposite of what the first Adam had done for he did not count equality with God something to be grasped for instead Jesus having emptied himself and taken on the role of a slave he humbled himself became obedient to God's will that he endured death on the cross because of this obedience to Christ then the restoration to us of the image of God which is really holy and righteousness to us is now actualized in that God for Christ's sakes forgives us and therefore finds us acceptable to him in Christ we are being transferred into the same image the same image of God so isn't that interesting Christ is the old Adam so there is uh, comparisons here there's similarities and there are dissimilarities and what are those in terms of this so if you we compare and contrast them Adam and Christ we can see a couple things here number one in Adam we did learn that Adam was created in the image of God right but then here Paul tells us and we'll see more of this that Christ is actually is the image of God so there's a difference so there's a likeness there's an, a difference Adam created in the image Christ is the image another comparison and contrast here Adam you recall he desired to be like God remember in the in the garden uh, with the fruit uh, but Christ he did not grasp for equality with God so we're, there are some differences there Adam then sought to exalt himself Christ of course humbled himself humbled himself all the way to the cross Adam disobeyed God Christ always obeyed and then finally Adam here in terms of looking at this image actually Adam lost the divine image for all of mankind in the fall but then Christ restored the divine image to man at the cross so see the comparisons between Adam and Christ even though they were both image of the invisible God or in the image there is comparisons but yet there's some definite uh, contrast within the two so image of God Jesus is the image of God Jesus is God himself okay any questions on that image of God yes do we have a mic we're gonna get a mic to you back there Yeah, I've heard before that, um, at, I've heard Adam from many churches, Adam and Christ compared. Mm -hmm. And I don't see, 
I can see that there are some similarities, some differences, but I don't see really how a comparison can be made because, you know, I just need clarification because Adam is created by God and Christ is God. Right. Mm -hmm. So to your point, he is the image of God and Adam is created in the image. And I think that's really the true only comparison where, you know, that's it. I mean, the remainder of it really is a contrast, I think, between Adam and Christ. Yeah, I've heard, yeah, you know, right. a cult say, um, Christ is the new Adam. And I just, I don't see how that could be. So, I... Yeah. Well, Christ is the new and the, the second Adam, I mean, in the, in the sense that, well, yeah, I don't... Yeah, I think it is just still within the image of Christ analysis. I think within that, but really the new Adam is—it's a real—it's com- a new—it's a contrast. The new Adam in the sense that he or is a the new beginning. New a beginning. New it's the new, yeah, the new beginning for mankind. That's it. Yeah, new beginning. Questions on that? Good question. Okay. So in addition to this, the image of, of the invisible God that Paul talks about, he also calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Now this, I think, gets to the heart of maybe some of the problems uh, that were going on with the Colossian church, but it has created additional problems for the church throughout history on this phrase. So in, in, in history, some, like the, in the 4th century, there was a heretic named Arius. I'm not going to get too much of this, but misunderstood this phrase think, and, and used this as the, the firstborn of all creation to argue that Jesus was not fully God. And it was you know, advanced that Jesus was believed to be the first created of all created beings. But you know, that's, that's not what Paul means, however. Uh, this phrase really does not say first created, but first born. The term here describes Jesus' preeminence above all creation. It relates more closely to the privilege of position that the firstborn son had in the ancient family. It is Jesus is God's only begotten son, his equal to the Father, and is above all creation. So what Paul's saying here with this use of the firstborn is not first created, in fact, what it is, firstborn, is the sense that he's been around since creation. And I do want a, an interesting note on this. If you guys want to turn to Genesis 1.1 on, on, you know, I want to look at this here. And, and I mentioned this when I did the uh, study on the name. So the first, the first sentence in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Simple enough, right? But when you look at the Hebrew term for God, um, Moses, when he wrote this, didn't write Yahweh or Adonai, um, but Moses chose a different word for, in the beginning, God created. In the Hebrew, the original text, it's the word Elohim. And what's... uh, Fascinating and interesting about this is Elohim in the Hebrew is a plural noun. So why did Moses choose to write that? Well, the Holy Spirit, of course, it was the Holy Spirit within him. But 
right off at the beginning in Genesis 1.1, the fourth letter of the, the fourth word in the Bible, God here, it's a reference to a plural God. And this is where um, we um, see that it was a plural God in the beginning, the Trinity, Jesus was there right at the creation of the heavens and the earth. And there's more evidence, obviously, all about, and I'll get into it in a minute. But in the beginning, Jesus, Jesus was there in the beginning. Firstborn of all creation is also is a reference to the incarnate Christ. Um, This is Christ's role in both creation and redemption. Paul is saying that Christ both preceded creation and its cause when he talks about the firstborn of all creation. Okay? I don't think anybody disagrees with that, right? Um, Okay, verse 16. Um, For by him all things were created. Um, for by him, and maybe you could look at when you look at the Greek, it can be for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So, and then you see all things were created through him. So we have for in him in verse 16, and then we say all things were created through him, in him and through him. So we have all things in him and through him, all creation came into to being through Christ. And again, not only just I talked about the Elohim word, but all throughout scriptures, and I've just brought out one, John 1, verses 1 and 2, and it clearly says this, In the beginning was the word, which was Jesus, and the word Jesus was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So clearly, this... Jesus was there at the beginning. He is part of creation. He is the creator. Again, this is what Paul's setting up this about who Christ was um, through the, for the Colossians, that he's, he is creator. What was created then? We see in verse 16, we see that heaven, earth, visible and invisible, so it's really everything that we can comprehend. It's two complementary pairs here. We have heavens versus the earth, and then visible versus invisible. And this really reemphasizes the point that Paul's making, is that Christ was there and part of the creation of everything. In terms of the visible creation, whether in the heavens, Jesus then was part of the creation of the stars and the planets or on the earth, the visible things such as man and animals. And then Paul talks about the invisible, which whether in the heavens, so invisibles, what Paul talks about um, could be the angels, invisible in heaven or on earth, things that are invisible such as wind, things like that are the creation of Jesus Christ. So really it's all things, the entire universe um, that was created uh, by Christ. Verse 16 here also. Paul states that in heaven on earth, visible and visible, 
that Christ also created thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now this is interesting. Most of the commentators say that this, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, really are a reference um, back to Jewish literature and how uh, the Jewish literature used to refer to angels. I think that's kind of fascinating, but I think there's a point here, is that the, uh, the Colossian heresy, kind of which I talked about at the beginning, the Gnostics, I'm not going to too much of it, but um, there, there's thought to be in this Gnosticism a real worship of angels. Um, so I think Paul is bringing this up here, that Christ created the angels in kind of response to this Gnostic worship of the angels. So I think that's why Paul's talking about that Christ created the angels and is above the angels. Um, but on this, I, th- I started thinking about the angels and what the you know Colossians could have believed or that. But then I thought about, well, what do we believe on angels? So where do you go? I, I go to the catechism. So I just want to read you a couple things on angels just so we can kind of see what, what we confess and what our Lord tells us and what we have in our catechism. Um, and this is on, got a catechism here, page uh, 142. Um, so the, the question is asked is, for what purpose did God create the angels? And number one here, God created angels to be his messengers and servants. We see this in Luke 1.13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So instances in the Bible where God created shows that God created the angels to be his messengers and servants. But what other purpose did God create the angels? God created angels to protect the people of God. There's some references in Psalms. 91, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then Hebrews 1, 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And then finally, God created angels to worship and praise him continually and lead us to do the same. Question 129, that this is fascinating. Do all the angels, angels serve the, these purposes of God? The answer is no. Some angels, the devil and the fallen angels, rebelled against God and now seek to destroy everything that is good, especially faith in Christ. Finally, question 130, what are some common questions about angels? Do we become angels when we die? You guys got it right. Everyone's shaking their head. No. We will be raised from the dead as glorified human creatures. Let's see. B. Are we to look to angels for direction in our lives or to pray to them? You guys all pass. You're saying, shaking your heads no. No. We pray only to God. Finally, do I have a personal guardian angel? Scripture does not directly answer this question, but it does speak of angels protecting God's people. We hear this in Psalm 91, uh, 9-12. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil should be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you 
to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then Matthew 18.10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So a little side note on angels I want to look at. Any questions or any other thoughts on that? But again, Paul, again, back to the original reason why Paul brings up this angels is because there apparently was some um, incorrect teaching in Colossian about angels. All right. Also in verse 16, other than angels, finally at, at the end of that verse, we see all things were created through him and then for him. For him. Um, That's a little odd. All things were created for him. Why would Paul write that? Christ is before all things, is to be understood in both time, our Lord existed prior to the creation, and his preeminence. Christ has authority over all the creation. The whole universe has its existence in Christ. But when we see this in him, um, yeah, in him, all things hold together. What Paul is saying is the universe continued to exist only in him. Without the lordship of Jesus Christ, the world would not continue as Jesus is the source of restoration. And I'll talk more about this when we get uh, to that in verse 20. So that's why Paul writes in, in him. It's this concept of existing uh, restoration of his, the universe. Okay, any questions on that? All right, let's look at uh, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is before all things. Um, Christ is before all things, is to be understood, as I just said, is it's existed prior to the creation and in the preeminence. So this is, again, further emphasizing that uh, Christ is here for the restoration um, of the universe. Um, so when we look at then 16 and 17, which tells us the, Jesus' role regarding um, all creation, how does it help inform us of our understanding of creation than today. So understanding Jesus' role and our understanding is seen in several ways. One, we can rejoice in the gifts God gives us in creation to enjoy and sustain our lives as his crown of creation. Another reason, number two, yet we can also humbly seek to care for the rest of his creation as, like us, all things were created in Christ as an act of God's grace. And the third, third way that we see Jesus' goal regarding creation today, these verses can also inform us our understanding that even our own bodies and lives are not our own, but rather our very selves belonging to the one who created us so that we would seek to use and manage our lives in conformity with God's will in Christ. And really what that is, as I've been talking about a lot, it's our vocation, right? It's our God-given vocation. 
It's how the Lord then uses us as masks to take care of his creation. And it's through the daily vocations, whether it be a farmer, the grocer, the banker, or what have you, the doctor. That's how God continues to take care um, of his creation. But ultimately, it's about us serving the neighbor. Serving the neighbor. Any questions on 16 and 17 here? Okay. Well, why don't we move on to verse 18? And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul here first uh, talks about he is the head of the body, the church. Of course, Paul is describing the relationship between our Lord and the redeemed, which is us, the church, in terms of this head of the body. Now, with the head of the body, what we have to assume here, uh, he's the head, but the body then, Paul speaks of the church as the body. And in a lot of Paul's writing, we see it's as the body of Christ. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul says that the church is the body of Christ, and he also does so in Romans 12, 4-5, which says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. So Paul is saying this. This is really not a figure of speech. This is a reality. This signifies that not... Not only is Christ headship over his church, but the truth that the church actually has no life apart from Christ. We are part of Christ. We are the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a relationship with Jesus and his followers. And how is that created then in us? How do we become the body of Christ? Again, through his means which he gives us. Baptism, the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So in our baptism, um, we are then reunited, united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. We become united with him in his body. And of course, Paul says this in Romans 6, um, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And also, then, we are part of the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper. We're the Lord's Supper that Christ sustains us, daily, daily keeps us within his body. As Christ gives us victory over sin and Satan in the Lord's Supper, he strengthens us for, strengthens us for new life in him, in his body. So then with this, through the word, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we, believers of Christ, um, are identified as members of Christ's body. I want to add one other thing this, and I, you know, I keep referring back to the small catechism in, in our confessions, but I think this is a, a wonderful uh, look at this. It's in the Augsburg uh, Confession in Article 7, talking about the church. Um, our confession has this to say, concerning the unity of the church. It is also taught among us that 
at all times there must be and remain one holy Christian church. It is the assembly of all believers among whom the gospel is purely preached and the holy sacraments are administered according to the gospel. For this is enough for the true unity of the Christian church, that there the gospel is preached harmoniously according to a pure understanding and the sacraments are administered in conformity with the divine word. So that's the church. Uh, there's the unity there within the church and we're all united around Christ and his word and in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Through the gospel and the word and sacrament, Christ then gives us this assurance for us, this relationship that he gives to us through his means of, of faith. So we have this assurance that we are part of the body. Christ is the head of the body and we are the church. Any thoughts on that? The church, the body, the oneness? I have uh, some thoughts on that subject, but I want to go back to uh, where it says Christ is the firstborn of the dead. And I believe that refers to the fact that he was raised from the dead uh, as the first one. But sometimes when we look back at the Mount of Transfiguration, mm -hmm. uh, there were some other saints there too. Uh, were they not bodily raised? Or... Um, what I mean, I don't. I don't think so. Well, it was. What about? Yeah, Elijah. You know, he he would never went to. He never died. So I don't know. It's just an interesting thought. Yeah, that is. And unfortunately, I don't have the answer. But well, I, oh, that's okay. <laughs> but I just thought I'd right. Just, certainly, we see the distinction though between you know Jesus was truly resurrected and now he's right, still within right. his body. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wouldn't argue that, but yeah. it's just interesting. Yeah, uh, because he's always referred to the firstborn from, yeah. of the dead. So and um, so that's good. But as far as the church goes, I I also would comment. Look, you know, Pastor Rody made an interesting point today that when Christ looks down at the church, he sees the church uh, differently than what we see it as, uh, fortunately, I guess, for us. But when we look at other churches, they, they don't... I've been to the strangest baptisms and the strangest sacraments uh, of the Holy Supper that you've ever seen, and... Yeah, quote, unquote. Um, so I don't know that we're all that unified, if you want to comment on that. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I think that's true. I mean, unified, but I, I, it, I think it, it becomes dangerous when we try to then say that they're not the church. I mean, here's what we, we believe, teach, and confess, that the church is a place where we have the proper proclamation of the gospel and where our, the sacraments are administered properly. And we, we, we get the gospel, right, our church, and we 
you know, we, do, we properly administer the sacraments. We have the correct understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, other churches don't, but I think it can be dangerous to say whether we can call them the church or not. I think we leave that up to God, but you're, you're right. I mean, there's clearly differences within denominations on that, and uh, I guess it could be debatable whether um, they are a true church or not, but uh, we'll leave that to our Lord to decide. But clearly, I mean, there are differences. I mean, I've seen it too. I was raised in the Methodist church, and yeah, there's significant differences. But uh, praise be to God that here, and, and especially in this church in particular, um, and uh, preaches the gospel and uh, administers the sacraments um, in the way that the Lord has given us to do. So we can be confident that here that we are the true church. This is the true church here. Not only locally, but within, you know, within, the, within the Missouri Synod, we believe that it's a true church. And there are other true, true church, churches too, but I think it's difficult to, to where you draw the line, who and who isn't. Uh, but certainly we praise God that we have our Lord's doctrine correct here, right? <laughs> All right. And I will get a little bit more in the first board of the dead here. Uh, you brought that up. Okay, so the church, unity, unity of the body, Christ is the head. The church is the body. Um, in verse 18 then, we talked about he is the head of the body of the church, and then he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he is the beginning. Um, of course, we talked about uh, the creation stuff, and I won't get back in that, but Paul is actually referencing this, some commentators say, is also a Jeff a reference to beginning at the beginning of the redemptive work. Jesus' creative power was at work and is at work in the world's redemption. Jesus is the mediator of salvation, just as he was of creation. So he was the beginning, in the beginning as creator, but he's also the beginning of the redemption for the world um, in his incarnation and then death and resurrection on the cross. He is the beginning of both. Um, you mentioned the firstborn of the dead. Um, of course, not only has Christ come back to life um, in his resurrection on the third day, but this is interesting. He is also the cause of our resurrection from the dead to eternal life. So firstborn of the bed of the dead has two aspects to it. Not only what he did himself, but then he is the cause of the, of the resurrection for us. Um, on the last day when Jesus will come and uh, resurrect us and take us with him in eternal life. Of course, which we were judged not on the last day. I said this last time, but we've already been judged. We were judged on his day, and that was on the day of the cross. when We were then baptized, and we were judged on that day. We were declared innocent. So no fret towards the last day for those We've been brought into the faith and been baptized as we've already been judged and we've already been declared not guilty and then we know that we'll be part of the resurrection and that's Jesus the firstborn of the dead is that he is also the cause um, then 18 says kind of the, this is the, the thesis sentence there the preeminence of Christ that in everything he might be preeminent and of course as what this is showing, everything up to this point, is Jesus is absolutely supreme of the, in, of the universe in all respects. 
heaven and earth, visible and invisible, everything is this preeminent, supreme of all of that. Okay. Any other questions or anything on that? Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay. This has some good stuff in it. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. A little confusing. What is kind of looking at this when we talk about pleased to dwell. So it's saying that God was pleased to dwell. What does pleased mean here? It's looking at the tense in the, in the Greek here. And it points to a completed past action in history. When the eternal Christ took on human flesh and became the man, um, then that's where the fullness of the deity dwelt. Fullness of God. This is the indwelling of the divine fullness in the human body of Jesus. This began at his incarnation and continues throughout all of history. So what Paul is saying here is that the fullness of God is pleased to dwell within, within Christ. And really what that, that is, is, is that it, we, we have a, theologians call it a, a, a two, it's the two natures of Christ. I'm not going to get too deep in it, but just keep it uh, basically this. Obviously that we know. Christ does have two natures, right? He is fully man, but then he is fully God. It's hard for us to comprehend, but we look at it this simply as this. He is 100% God, but at the same time, he is also 100% man. Now, have I cleared it up? You guys get it? Easy to understand, right? <laughs> Well, we take it for what it is. That's, it's the truth. And we see it throughout all of Scripture. Paul's saying this some here with God uh, pleased to dwell within him. God's plea within him. It's really it's a look at this, that God is 100%. Or Jesus is 100% God, but Jesus is also 100% human. But it's important to when we look at Jesus... Um, when we confess, actually in the Athanasian Creed, we say there are not two Christs, but they're one Christ, okay? So we've got to be careful when we talk about his two natures. He's fully God, yes. Fully human, yes. But then we don't try to separate and say, well, then he must be two persons. No. We confess, and our Lord tells us that he is one person. He is one Christ. And then these two natures his divine and his human natures, um, they are, of course, joined into this one person without division, without separation, without change, and without confusion. In other words, we want to make sure that we maintain the completeness and integrity of both natures while at the same time maintain the unity of Christ. So... Two natures of Christ. I'm sure, I think Pastor, I'm sure Pastor Rodi has talked about that much. Uh, there's other things that can be looked into that. I think for the purposes of time, we can't uh, get into that. But of course, God is both fully man and fully God. Or Jesus is fully man and fully, fully human. 
Any other thoughts or questions on that? Anybody want to bring up the, the different attributes? No. <laughs> of course, Jesus, uh, when I talk about attributes, there's certain things he does that uh, we can look at. And it was that done through his divine nature, his human nature. We can break that up, and I think there's fair arguments, but at the same, he does act according to his divine nature at times, and then he acts according to his human nature, but the point is that we, we can't mix them. He's 100% both, and he's not two persons, but one person. Any other thoughts or questions on that? Verse 20. Um, so, so in context, for in him with all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Um, and then verse 20 is, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay. So where the transition now is going on, verse 20, then will take us to 21. It's above who Christ is, and then now the transition into what he has done. And here we see um, some terms. The first one is to reconcile. We talked about this some. Um, reconciliation. The reference here, Paul is talking about reconciliation, of course, because as we've seen before, when Paul talked about original sin, Paul is showing us that in this reconciliation, the human humans, we humans, we actually need reconciliation. And if, if you recall the discussion on the original sin, which Paul talked about earlier, that of course, that we need someone to reconcile us to God the Father, and that's Jesus. So here... Paul designates Christ as the agent for the restoration of the fallen creation to its original good status. So, that's one of the, the work of Christ here, is to reconcile himself to all things. Next is, uh, we see in here, how is this done? Making peace by the blood of the cross. So, blood, blood of the cross, was Paul getting at here? Um, blood of the cross. Um, this is the means necessary for this reconciliation between God and man is the blood on the cross. So blood here, when Paul uses blood, he's implying both the incarnation and the full humanity of our Lord and then designates his violent death. So Jesus then becomes the source of this reconciliation through his blood. Now as we know, the image of Christ's blood shed on the cross brings to mind the Old Testament where there were sacrifices and God's teaching that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And we, we saw that all throughout the Old Testament. Of course, sin robs life. And the way that it is restored is that another's life is given up through the shedding of blood. But here, of course, now, as opposed to the Old Testament, Jesus, as both true God and true man, 
is the only one whose innocent blood could cover the sin and restore the relationship between God, humanity, humanity, and thus all creation as reconciling sinners, then releases creation from the fall. So it's Jesus' blood, Jesus' blood that reconciles us. And of course, that's the theology and of course what our Lord has given us when, uh, through the Lord's Supper. It's his true blood that comes to our lips, and that's his body and blood is what reconciles us and continues to strengthen us in the faith, in the strengthen us in our faith. So the blood. Any questions on that? There. Okay, and then Paul says, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross, the cross actually is really largely confined to Paul's letters when he speaks this way. The apostle usually uses the term cross with uh, connotations of both the humiliation of Christ and the power of salvation. Um, By his death on the cross, Christ rescued mankind by bearing the punishment and shame in the place of others. The past event of the cross was the cause of reconciliation and peace. It was a past event. But we still look toward, to the cross today. We look at the cross as how we were reconciled through Jesus' um, death and resurrection. Okay. Also in verse 20 then, we talked about uh, reconciliation through blood and the cross. And it was reconciled everything, whether on earth or in heaven. So Paul actually reverses the order that we, he used in verse 16 where he stressed a creation of the universe. Here, Paul then is finalizing this with where he stresses restoration through Christ's work on behalf of all mankind. Um, the reconciliation of the universe means it's a restoration to what its creator intended it to be. It is brought into harmony with the Creator through being under the headship of the risen and exalted Christ who made peace, thus bringing the restoration of peace. So isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's, that's what Paul's talking about, who Christ is and then what he has done for us and how he continues to do that for us. It's this reconciliation, how he makes peace, making peace with us um, and, and the God the Father through the blood and the cross of Jesus. Any other thoughts on that? Thank you. Made you come all the way to the back here. So um, one thing, and I, you may have mentioned this, uh, Vicar, one thing um, that can really help with the interpretation of this section is, and I've even, if you, if you draw in your Bible, this is a place to draw, okay? So the first verse of this hymn begins at 15 with, he is the image, and the last part of the first verse concludes in verse 18 at the first sentence. So, and he is the head of the body, the church. Do you see that there in the in the 18th verse? 
Okay, now what comes next, he is the beginning. That's the start of the second verse. Right, And then that verse carries on through the end of verse 20. Why that's helpful in terms of overarching theme, but just also in in terms of uh, mode of speech, is you can see the parallelism. So at 15, look at how it opens. He is the image of the invisible God. Um, And then look how it opens at verse 18, where the second verse starts. He is the beginning. So he in 15, he is the icon. In 18, he is the RK. And what, what you have then is, is an overarching emphasis in verse 1 on his all-encompassing role in creation, the original creation. And then what you have in verse 2 of the hymn is his overarching role in the restoration of creation and the dawning of a new creation. So, like, next, after he is the icon and he is the arche, look at verse 15. The firstborn of all creation, now drop down to 18, the firstborn from the dead. You see what's going Mm. on there, the parallelisms? And then we we talk about his encompassing role um, by him, all things were created. Um, in verse 16, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. That finds its para- parallel, even though the predicate and subject are flip-flopped, it finds its parallel in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven. So you can see the parallels there and those thoughts that all things are made through him, now all things are reconciled through him. And then both of these verses close close with statements in regard to his proper work. So in 18, he and he is the, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, is parallel to what he does at the end of verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross, namely peace with those who believe and are thus the church. So you can see those two ideas um, being parallel to each other, not identical, of course, but parallel to each other. That can help you as you just read this section. I just want to yeah. make that commentary because um, this is a section where you, you an over-analysis on the specifics, as if Paul was writing in the mode of um, Francis Pieper's Christian dogmatics, can here actually take you away from uh, a more accurate reading, and certainly not accusing um, the study of that at all, Uh, but just to see these things the way you would see a hymn, and to see it as poetry and as overlapping themes that kind of complement and build on one another, that can help iron out a bunch of different wrinkles that we have in our minds. And you can see too why it's exploitative for someone like Arius to grab a hold of one tiny little section of a poetic piece and him and say, aha, here's the doctrine upon which I'm going to build my entire heresy, right? All right. Anyway, just wanted to add that, but anyway, thank you. Yeah. Perfect. And that was a, a great uh, summary there, Pastor. Thank you very much. I, I think uh, that, that summarized it very good, and we're actually out of time, so if that's okay, we'll end on uh, Pastor's great closing there, which was awesome. Uh, so the Lord be with you.